Welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. David Lally here, producer of the show, and I'd like to congratulate Brian on the success of his new book, The Emigrant Edge. It's now a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Amazon bestseller. So if you haven't gotten a copy yet, do yourself a favor, get down to your local or online bookseller. In the meantime, here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you. Welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. I am so excited for all of you today. I think anyone who listens to this show today is going to be blessed. Your life is going to be better. You're going to have a smile on your face. You're going to be inspired. You're going to be encouraged by our next guest. He is one of the best-known names in the history of world figure skating and so much more. Scott Hamilton has won four consecutive U.S. national championships, four consecutive world championships, an Olympic gold medalist. You name it, he's done it. Founder of Stars on Ice, network TV skating analyst, actor, performer, producer, Emmy Award nominee, best-selling author, humanitarian. He's both a cancer and brain tumor survivor, a remarkable story, a man of faith, a man of family, a man of great values. And Scott, uh, we had the great privilege of him very recently coming to speak at one of our mastermind events where 3,000 people were enthralled and hanging on every word he had to say. And it is such an honor to have Scott Hamilton as a guest today. Scott, welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. Just so honored to have you here today. Well, thank you. And I'm still aglow after being in front of that audience at your mastermind event and what an amazing crowd it's a different kind of crowd because mm-hmm. you know they got their notepads out and they're you know they're writing things down and you know they really just truly want to be inspired and they want to be touched and they want to you know leave that event better than when they arrived and yep. you've created something magnificent and i was honored to be a part of it well i appreciate it you know we love people who want to take in great information and grow and then go do something with it And that's why when we have a guest, we want somebody who's been there, done that. And you have been there and done it, and done it better than anybody in the country, better than anybody in the world. So inspirational because, you know, many people look and they see this immense talent, this guy that could do backflips and triple sockows and (laughs) score tens and go, man, the guy never had a bad day in his life. He's got a smile that lights up a building. You know, I wish I had that guy's life. And, right? <laughs> no, you know what? No, I also collect life-threatening illness. So, you <laughs> right. know, there's always there's a yin and a yang, right? So, right. You know, there's been a lot of really turbulent times in my life, and mm-hmm. what I've learned is it's not so much that, it's kind of how you go through it. Mm. It's not so much whatever challenge is in front of you, but how you face it. It's not, you know, the accolades, the trophies, all that stuff. I always tell people, you know, the greatest thing about winning is the 10 minutes after you win, and then it's time to get back to work. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, that was really nice. Yep. Okay, let's get back to work. Yeah. Know, but, and none of those things are things that you just, you know, kind of hang on to. You know, right. I always thought my Olympic gold medal was, you know, beyond anything I ever would have dreamed to even dream of. It just sort of was an extension of all these other decisions that happened that kind of put me in the right place at the right time. But I never really wanted it around anymore. I never really wanted mm-hmm. that medal to be like prominently displayed, or I didn't want to build a shrine to it. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to, you know, to. So I, it just sort of lived in my air quotes sock drawer for about eight years. I have heard and, that so many times. It's yeah. <laughs> in my sock drawer. Oh, yeah. So it's in my sock drawer, and I realized that it's kind of a two-purpose anchor, mm-hmm. like whatever 
opportunities I have in the future are going to be anchored to that accomplishment. But I didn't want it to be an anchor that prevented me from moving forward. Mm. So I just sort of put it in its place. It's like it's a physical object that I really don't want to look at. I don't want it to be around. Mm-hmm. I just because I'll get stuck in that moment. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to be able to use whatever credibility, whatever familiarity, whatever I could use from that moment, you know, whatever experience, whatever ability, whatever whatever I could use. I just wanted to, you know, leverage that into the next opportunity and the next opportunity. And, you know, that opportunity creates this one. This mm-hmm. one creates that one. That yeah. one creates another one, you know. So I just wanted to keep moving forward, and I wanted to learn. I wanted to grow. I wanted to be better next year than I was this year. I never wanted to look at my amateur or my Olympic or my competitive career as being, you know, the tip of the iceberg. I just wanted it to be kind of the foundation, the base of everything I do, but not definitely not the peak. The power is continually, I hear this, it's the journey, right? Brett Favre, he's receiving the Lombardi Trophy, and he goes, is this it? I would say I've talked to at least six Olympians who've won gold medals who say it's in their sock drawer. And I've met occasionally uh, one or two did build a shrine, but they're stuck back there. And yeah, that moment stuck. of glory, and now there's almost a resentment that, hang on a second here, people have forgotten who I am or what I did or what I accomplished. Yeah. We love people who are ambitious, who are striving, who want to be better and who want to improve. But the power is the journey, and you've had a heck of a journey. And maybe we can talk a little bit about where it all started. You were adopted as a little baby. Many, yeah. many people wouldn't know that. And again, you have a great attitude towards your perception on that. Just talk about that for a second. Well, I mean, I was adopted at six weeks, you know, and I like to say that I remember it like it was yesterday, you know, and it was just, you know, one of those things where the fact that I was adopted, was it because I was unwanted? Mm. Well, if I was unwanted, I wouldn't have survived the pregnancy, mm-hmm. all right? So it wasn't that. It was more that I was given an opportunity to be raised by people that could do it well and properly, who mm-hmm. desperately wanted a baby. And mm-hmm. my mom... She wanted a big family. She was a very nurturing person. So, you know, growing up adopted, I was always meant to feel special. I was always meant to feel that, you know, whatever, you know, other kids thought or whatever they felt or whatever their misunderstandings about what the whole adoptive thing is, it's truly that I was desperately wanted by this couple that wanted to have a big family. And so, you know, I was the middle child of three, which meant, you know, I could get away with murder. (laughs) You know, I wasn't the one that was like, uber discipline like you know the oldest child is and i wasn't quite given a total pass like my youngest you mm-hmm. know i was just sort of left to my own devices which is you know kind of a great middle child thing. Mm-hmm. so i was allowed to become whatever you know i was naturally allowed to become you know i wasn't you know, when I, I was in a very academic family my mother you know was a second grade school teacher became a professor in the home economics department and marriage and family relations you know, my grandmother was a second grade school teacher. My aunt was a second grade school teacher. My grandfather was a school administrator, you know, so mm. my dad was a PhD professor of biology. The fact that I had to negotiate my high school diploma must have come as some sort of a <laughs> disappointment to them. But yeah, you hey, know, it was I just... tell my kids all the time when it comes to academics, we're great athletes. That's the key. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, is what you learn from that, you know, yeah. it's like even in my faith, you know, I say try being my mildly dyslexic and read Isaiah, you know, (laughs) know, it comes a lot of patience with, you know, truly understanding that I can do this, but that's going to be harder for me. I have these abilities. I have these talents. I have this that I can leverage and I can, I can really develop and work on that. 
And then I'm always going to struggle with that. You know, right. so my parents were smart enough to realize that I was always going to be, you know, the student that probably took, you know, a B minus to a B plus just through charming the teachers. You know, I was always <laughs> going to be that diplomat. I was always going to be, you know, someone that really enjoyed people, really enjoyed pleasing others, really enjoyed serving others, really enjoyed just being around other people in front of other people. So, you know, whatever that life, you know, was in the very beginning, it, it certainly I found my calling, you know, because mm-hmm. everything I did after that, you know, figure skating, you're alone on the ice, you have center of attention, you have the ability to, you know, cast your own spell. And then then beyond that, I got into, you know, professional skating and then broadcasting and, you know, all of that. And I really was allowed to allow one to feed the next. Mm. And what I mean by that is when I went into broadcasting, it wasn't about me being this expert broadcaster. It was about me trying to figure out a way to truly represent these skaters' ambitions and stories. Mm. You know, it was not about me coming up with the, you know, the really clever catchphrase or anything like that. It was more about this person's worked really hard to be here. And I know because I've been in their shoes and, and I really want them to feel good about what I have to say, you know, if they have a bad night, I'll recognize it. If they have a good night, I'll recognize it. But I want it to be representative of their journey, not mine. Mm-hmm. And I was given those lessons throughout. You know, like the one you were saying, the Olympic champions never got past it. One of the first things I experienced when I, or two things, that I experienced when I was done with my Olympics was I spoke at the Paralympics banquet. And I just felt like, who am I to think that I'm special when you've got these people that are going down a mountain 70 miles an hour on one leg? Mm. Or, you know, you have blind skiers or you have, you know, all these people that are dealing with these physical handicaps that are just, you know, conquering the elements. It's like, who am I? You know, and then I met with the governor of Colorado and I thought it was going to be one of those photo op things, you know, those political mm. things, but it wasn't. It was just him and me in a room and he was just giving me avuncular advice you know he just said look i want you to truly understand that you know what you've done is extraordinary and i want you to milk every moment out of it you possibly can but there's this thing called the hometown hero syndrome it's not going to be like that forever Mm. so enjoy this time but know it will come to an end and know that life will become relatively normal for you and i said cool thanks you know (laughs) it was really you know i appreciate because I'm getting real stuff from, mm. you know, obviously someone who's in the public eye, right. someone who, you know, gets things. And I just thought that was the most generous thing he could have done for me at that yeah. time. Very cool. And so, again, your dynamic is, I love your quote that says, the only disability is a bad attitude, right? And so True. you start out, and again, the whole dynamic of adoption and all the different circumstances of a person's family of origin, so on and so forth. But ultimately, you chose to go, I was wanted this family wanted me and you know you started out as a young kid you were you were sick you had a lot of physical ailments you're taking the nasty medicine all the time you know you're fighting through for years and years some serious illnesses and then you come across figure skating you know I just had a a, a conversation with my son in fact your presentation at our event just had a huge influence on my middle son Oh, thank you. Because my oldest guy is this stud, was a college football player, and now he's a special forces guy in the military. My daughter's yeah. this national champion horse rider. Well, my middle guy, he's a really talented athlete, and he got a bunch of offers to play volleyball. He got some to play basketball. He's back and forth, back and forth. And we had a discussion the other night in our backyard about passion. And, you know, he was saying, you know, how does 
Scott Hamilton's passion, he had to go through all these sicknesses, all these illnesses as a child, you know, severe stuff as an adult. And how did he still maintain his passion? I go, well, Alex, the word passion comes from the word paseo, which means to suffer. And I go, what are you willing to suffer for? And it ended up being, he had already agreed to go play college volleyball. And I'm talking about two nights ago, we call up the college coach that's been recruiting him forever to play basketball. And he's down there this morning signing on. He'll be at basketball camp tomorrow. And he, based on your inspiration, has decided to pursue his passion, which was kind of buried down inside him because other people wanted him to do other things. Yeah. And so... Wow. Wow. So I know of that. I know of many people who are in the room who are inspired by your story. But maybe you can tell the folks a little bit about your process going through from where you were to not exactly being the star skater, (laughs) right, and then fighting through with your mom's illness. You know, when I got on the ice and I started skating around, you know, I realized that I'm hanging out with these well kids and I can do something as well as they can. You know, I was always the shortest one in my class. I was always, obviously, the sickest one in my class. I was in and out of hospitals for four years and... Mm. I was on restricted diets, and I had all these things that made me feel different than all the other kids. And when I got on the ice, I realized that I was, maybe I couldn't articulate it that way then, but it was like, I'm on common ground, and I can do something as well as they can. Mm. And all of a sudden, you know, for the very, very, very first time in my life, I just had the slightest twang of self-esteem, you know, and Mm. it was just the most powerful, you know, I call self-esteem the most powerful agent ever, because if you can believe in yourself, if you can look kindly upon yourself, if you can, you know, recognize good things in yourself, it'll help you avoid a lot of really bad things, right? So Mm. I realized that I wasn't right physically, I wasn't growing right, I wasn't doing a lot of things right, but I could skate as well, not only as a well kid, but after a few weeks, I was skating as well as the best athletes in my grade, and Mm. I was like, wow, this is awesome. And then all of a sudden, my health started to get better and then my you know perspective on life started to get better and everything started to improve just by this activity of skating and then of course i got all the teasing from you know the hockey guys saying you know i'm in a girl's sport you know all these other things and it was like well it's not really a girl sport it's kind of like many faceted sport but you know i know i'm getting teased so i i had to play hockey you know just to sort of you know stop the teasing and in that you know i i joke that i I played uh, hockey for two neck braces, and then you know I had to move on. And, and the, the thing was, it was I played for three seasons, and I got hurt a little bit, but it was the second time I really got leveled in the corner because mm. they allowed checking back then. And, mm. and one of my best friends, yeah, I just saw the look in his eyes. He just looked at his chops, going, "I am so teed up to just slam into the wall." And sure enough, I I heard something kind of pop and crack a little bit, and then I just didn't really want to get up and. They got me off the ice, and they realized they strained my neck, and so they put me in this cervical collar for a while, and then I said, you know what? I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really right. done. But it was throughout all that that I was doing okay, you know, on the regional side, you know, on the very basic side. But when I get into, like, the section, you know, the next level up, I, I really wasn't that great. I was okay. But then, you know, when I finally got to the Nationals, I found that I was a miserable failure. My first Nationals ever was in front of 17,500 people. And, mm. and, you know, you have to understand, I came from a very small town, and I trained in an even smaller town. And I'm looking at more people than I'd ever seen in my whole life, wow. ever. And I choked. I fell five times in my long program and came in dead last, and it was devastating. I never even practiced the program with falling five times. Now mm. I've 
doing that in front of like 17,500 people and it was just sort of one of those things that was humiliating and embarrassing and I said, well, I'm going to fight back. I'm going to, I'm going to do better next year and the next year I came in next to last. You know? so, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't really mobile. That, you know, people are going, watch out for that kid. You know, he's going he's gonna to change the world. You know, it's like, no, I was the bad guy. I was, mm. the, you know, the easy win, you know. Mm. The, and so, you know, I finally got to the junior level, and I beat two guys at national. What, what age is junior level? Uh, I was a junior in high school. Okay. Actually, I kind of followed along, you know. So mm-hmm. I was a junior in high school, driver's license, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I went to nationals that year and came in uh, seventh out of nine. And then, you know, my mom sat us down and said, you know, I've just been diagnosed with cancer, and mm-hmm. i got to make a few changes around here, and I just need your support. Because she was – here's my mom, all right? She was – Working full-time as a professor at Bowling Green State University, she knew that her second-grade school teacher salary wasn't going to cut it for my skating, so she went back to school, got her master's, became an associate professor, teaching, raising a family, and still going to school to try to get the next level up so she could make more money to keep me in skating. Mm. You know, finally she's diagnosed with cancer, and, and then it becomes this thing where they just said, look, you got one year left. We can get you through this year, but... After that, we're basically bankrupt. We're done. Uh-huh. And so that year, you know, my mom went through chemo. She had her left breast removed, mostly inside of her left arm. And, and you have to understand that my mom was the center of my universe. And so when she was suffering, I was suffering. And then for that year, whatever happened, I guess the sentence of it being, this is your last year, I kind of threw all my chips into the middle of the table. And um, I won junior nationals. And what was crazy about that was nobody was really expecting me to do anything, mm. I don't think. No, you're second to I last. I got the and... eye of a couple coaches mm. and a couple, you know, started to get the buzz around like, whoa, wow, look at this improvement this year. And so my mom, on the way to nationals that year, she met with a couple, and she didn't tell me any of this until after I won. She said, uh, I, I met a couple from Chicago who's wealthy, and they have no children, and they'd love to support your skating. So... You now have a second life in skating. And so, wow. of course, that year, you know, I call it the trifecta. You know, I I turned 18. I was sponsored. And I got my own apartment, you know. And, <laughs> man, that's just a recipe for disaster. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's why we love God's grace, you know, because he'll see us through a lot of things. So I was an epic failure at that Nationals. I went back to my ninth place, you know, mm. ways and... What really super stung, I mean, and to this day, it was the last time my mom ever saw me skate in competition. Mm. You know, she lost her battle that May, and I just had to make a decision. You know, it's like she sacrificed everything for me to be in skating. The least I can do is honor her by being the best I could be and try honoring her sacrifices. Mm. And so I just became a different person. I chose to be a different person, and... Mm. I was the first one on, you know, session, last one off. I, you know, worked harder. I drove my coaches so crazy in Colorado. They sent me to Canada for the summer, and I was so ambitious. I'd get through my program every single day where before I'd kind of stop, you know, if I got tired. And and I just pushed through, and I just, you know, started breaking down doors. And it was all based on your commitment. You wanted to honor your mom. Yep. And you just um, just made a decision. So you're the same guy, but you came to a turning point. You made a decision, and that changed the trajectory of your whole life, didn't it? Oh, it totally did because I went from ninth that competition my mom saw me skate in to third the next year, third at nationals, eleventh in the world, mm. and then the next year I got injured in the summer, which put me way behind the rest of the field, and 
still ended up coming in fourth at nationals, but I didn't make it to the world team. And I really sensed that my coach was losing interest in me. You know, I think there were some other things available to him, and there were other opportunities that, you know, meant more than his relationship with me. And so I spoke to him about it, and I said, you know, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, if you want to leave, I'm not going to be upset. And I was like, okay, well, all right. That's a ringing endorsement. Yeah, that's it. Okay, I got permission, but there was never, like, he never mentioned the word stay. Baby, don't go. No, I never once. (laughs) Not once. So I went to a a coach that didn't have his pedigree. Mm. I mean, you know, the coach that I was with that lost interest in me had trained three Olympic gold medalists. Mm. You know, Peggy Fleming, Dorothy Hamill, and John Curry, and wow. was about to coach his fourth one, Robin Cousins, to a gold medal in the Olympics in 1980. And mm. so I went to um, Don Laws, who didn't really have that. He had respect, and he was very liked and very respected by the community, but he wasn't this Olympic coach. He never really took anybody that far before, but we had a great friendship, and I trusted him, and he said, let's do this thing right. And so he allowed me to be me, but at the same time, I had to be accountable to every single practice, every single training session with a specific set of goals in mind. And man, that year I made it to the Olympics. I was fifth in the Olympics. After that season, the 1980 season, the top three guys retired. So all I had to do was wake up one morning and rank second in the world. And from, <laughs> from that, you know, there is a lot to be said, you know, like in our business. In the coaching side of things, we used to have 27 competitors, and when the recession came, we fought through it. And by the time the recession over, there was us and one other company. You know, it's like, that's the deal. So sometimes just persevering through and fighting through, you yeah, do move up the last ranks. man standing, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I had one guy to beat. And ironically, you know, here's the kind of crazy thing. Every now and then I take a step back and I realize what was in front of me. I had one guy to beat. And that guy, the year that I fell five times at Novice Nationals and came in dead last, he was third in championship men Mm. as a whiz kid. Wow. So I had to figure out a way to get past this guy. And my goodness, he was always top three in the country, you know, all those years. And I was, you know, kind of losing and trying to figure it out. And and so finally, I started in October at an international competition called Skate Canada I went there, you know, just all guns a-blazing, and from October of 1980 to March of 1984, I never lost a competition. Wow. And a lot of that was just, you know, some of it was luck, you know, honestly. The rest of it was just this tireless pursuit of just trying to be a little better today than I was yesterday. How many hours a day would you put in, typically, when you were training at your peak? Six. Wow. Four of them were compulsory figures. Mm-hmm. And the other two are freestyle. Right. But the freestyles are pretty intense. You know, I do run-throughs of my competitive programs, and I'd have to do them at competition level. And on the figure side, the compulsory figures side, I was way behind. I hated figures. Mm -hmm. I just despised them. And because I hated them so much, it was really hard for me to be studious in my work. So I just sort of like, eh, I'll just spend the hour working on them. And I, I just didn't care. I didn't have that passion for them. And then when I realized that that was the one thing holding me back, I just decided that it was there that I figured out that the greatest strength is a lack of weakness. Mm. The greatest thing you can do is chip away at all the things that are holding you back to a point where really there isn't anything holding you back anymore. So getting better at figures 
and having Don Laws as my coach was spectacular because he didn't have this, you know, this is how you do it. And this is the only way to do it. He said, you know, so show me what you got and what have you learned from this coach and what have you learned from that coach and what do you remember from that coach? And, and I had some phenomenal figures coaches over the years. I just didn't understand a word that was coming out of their <laughs> mouth. Right. And then finally, you know, he started to kind of allow me to understand what that means. When they tell you to do this, that's why. When they mm. tell you to be on this part of the blade, this is what it does. When mm. they tell you to push only like this, that's why. Mm. And it was like, bing, 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 all the lights started to come on. Mm. So by the time I got to 1984, I had one guy to beat in figures, and he was you know, one of the best figure skaters in history. It was Jean-Christophe Simon. He was from France. Mm-hmm. And so Don Laws did something really bold on my way to the Olympics in 1984, he said, we're going to get used to the time change before we show up in Yugoslavia. I go, where are we going? And he goes, Paris. <laughs> so the first day I was there, I was doing figures right next to the best figure guy oh, wow. in the world. And I looked over and I said, holy cow, I can beat this guy. Mm. And so when competition came, I was lucky. I drew a really good position where I could put my figure either right on top of his or right next to it on you know this sheet of ice. And I went five judges to four on the first figure. I think I was six judges to three. I won the second figure. And then on the third figure, I was nine judges to zero. And mm-hmm. I beat him. And right there, I was first in figures. And I knew that mathematically, it was going to be practically impossible for anybody to beat me. But I still had to stand up and get through the rest of the event. Right. You know? Yep, not fall. But a couple of things that strike me there when you share that stuff. First of all, your greatest strength is a lack of weakness. You know, Everybody thinks when you're doing what you love, you love everything about it. And I think that's one of the common misconceptions, right? I mean, you were pursuing your passion. You were doing what you were born to do. You loved it. You were great at it. You became the best at it in the whole world, which is just hard when people really get to understand what it means because you're a very gracious guy. But to be the best at anything in the whole world takes a pursuit like none other. And not everything about it is fun. And not everything about it is you know, I love to speak and so on and so forth, but it comes with travel, and I'm not the biggest fan of travel. And so, you know, you come with these things, and, you know, rose bushes have thorns, and silver linings have clouds, right? So yeah, you yeah, have to push yeah. through. But also yeah. the brilliance of your coaches, not only telling you the why behind the what, but then also elevating your environment to put you right there in Paris next to the guy, and all of a sudden that belief, that what started out as a little boy is that self-esteem, your self-esteem going into the worlds was off the charts because you knew, I can beat this guy. Oh, totally, 100%. You know, I realized that it was world title number two because I freaked out after my first world title. I thought two things. One, the sport's never been in a worse place if I'm its champion, you know. And then the second, no, I honestly, and the second part about it was is I've got to totally up my game if I'm going to be wearing this title, right? Mm. And I drove myself crazy. And Mm. my coach was able to kind of, gently navigate me through mm. so you know when i went to copenhagen for the world that year i was totally a psychological mess mm. and then when i'm standing on the first place podium i'm looking around going holy cow this is a whole different podium all the guys that were standing next to me at second and third the year before are sixth and seventh and all the guys that were sixth and seventh are now second and third and i'm like wow this whole sport is flipping Mm. and then i came to the realization it was like well wait a minute this isn't like some weird kind of over the top title this is a competition it's just purely a competition it's got a big title to it but it's Mm. purely a competition and if i don't win this thing 
one of these guys is going to win it. <laughs> and I'm not going to let that happen. Right. So I went from feeling unworthy one year to the next year. I felt like this is totally mine. Yeah, why not, it. yeah. yeah why not me? Yeah, why not me? I realized that I work probably harder than everybody else. I've had more to endure than anybody else, and I deserve it. And so I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep pushing the envelope. I'm going to keep getting better and better every year, and I'm going to chip away at my weaknesses. Well, talk to this for a second, because you're touching on something, again, I want to kind of dig into, which is I've been around a lot of people, and, you know, my wife from her athletic background, we've been around a lot of people who made it and then couldn't maintain it. Mm-hmm. You know, rising to the top, it's exciting, it's invigorating. You see this all the time with sports teams. They're so driven to win that one championship. And then they fizzle out and disappear because they have that moment where they've gotten the medal. Oh, my gosh. And then you have the a little bit of a letdown after you win. My daughter had it two years ago. She won first and second in the U.S. National Championships. And a couple of weeks later, she was like walking around going, I don't know why I'm getting out of bed in the morning. And yeah. so that vacuum... Talk about what it means to, once you get to the top, what it takes to stay at the top. Now everybody's gunning for you. Well, you know, the first year I was the underdog going in Mm -hmm. because David Santee was light years ahead of me in in so many ways. But then I got a couple of the jumps, you know, which separated me on the freestyle side. He's still on me on the figure side. On the freestyle side, I was able to do some things that were not being done you know, by many people in the world, and I was able to package those with strong routines. And my freestyle routines were really difficult, really intricate, and, and I had a lot of good stuff to work with. So from there, it was like, okay, now the sport's flipping. All right, so all those guys are starting to fade away, and now these new guys are coming up, and these new guys are going to be hungrier. Mm-hmm. The new guys are going to be looking at me and putting a target on my back. And so it just came down to what do I need to do to stay ahead of these guys? Well, one, I couldn't just do the same program again. I had to up the game. I had to come up with something brand new, you know, a whole different look so that you can beat yourself in many ways by just, you know, riding the same horse at every single race. You know, you've got to change it up a little bit Mm -hmm. to present a fresh face. You know, you don't want to be the... The guy that's been there too long, just doing the same old thing. You've got to it can, next year. You got to be better. You've got to be different in the way that you present yourself a little bit. You got to freshen it up every year. So it's not like you know people get tired of looking at the same thing. It's they get to look at something unique so that they build this sense of anticipation with what's he going to do this year and what's he going to do this year. So mm-hmm. my job, you know, as being in a judge sport, was to keep it really fresh up the difficulty every single year and, you know, just tread, you know, enough water in my weak areas to be able to, you know, throw it down in my strong areas mm. while still maintaining, you know, that improvement on the weak areas. So every year, like, you know, first two years I came with basically the same program and I realized year three of that four-year period, I had to totally reinvent everything. And I mm. did. I showed up with a whole different look on Program so you still have to be willing to risk, right? You're at the top. Yeah, you have to, you know, be able to say, okay, this is reset. Like I'm not coming in just trying to win it the way I've always won it. Right. It's not a reset. It's I'm coming in here to win it because I'm going to be the best skater there. Mm. And here's why, and here's how. And I'm not going to be taken advantage or taken for granted because I'm just rehashing the same things over and over. I want to be fresh. I want it to be new. I want it to look different. And in that way. I can really establish 
a seniority and establish that relationship with the judges who are determining my fate. Mm-hmm. In preparation for having you come speak, I must have watched on YouTube your performance of Walk This Way. I must have watched it a hundred times, and now I have it. <laughs> I turn it on at least once a week just for a little, you know, I turn off the news, I turn off social media, and I Good. just watch that, and it's just awesome. I mean, it's just uh, it's a, a bright spark in the day and that energy and power. One of the things you mentioned when you were presenting for us last week that really struck me that made it to my journal was that you reckon you fell down 41,600 times. Yep. And which means you got up 41,601. And yep. that obviously has translated into some very other powerful things in your life, your battle with cancer and tumors and so on and so forth. But talk about the power of perseverance and what it means when you fall 41,000 times that you get up 41,001. And I think that's why skating was such an important foundation for the rest of my life was because, you know, it's filled with, you know, failure after failure after failure after failure, and then you figure it out. And you go, oh, okay, now I know how to do that. But, you know, a big part of learning anything is falling down, you know, mm. and, and that doesn't exist in many other disciplines, right? You know, the mm-hmm. falling down part, you know, it's just... You know, you fall, you get up, you fall, you get up, you fall, you get up. I fell so many times in my right hip learning triple lutz that I had this cyst that grew in a bursa sac that was just mm. full. And so when they took it out on the cyst and when they drained the, the burst sac, it turned into this thing where it hurt so hard to fall on that hip, I just started landing it. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest thing ever happened to your coach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, ouch. Don't do that. I mean, pain is a really terrific teacher, right? Mm. You know, so once I started figuring out, okay, now I get to fall on this until I figure it out. I get to fall on this until I figure it out. When you build your excellence on a mountain of failure, you know, you don't fear things the same way mm. as you do where you're just, you know, if you fall down, it's odd. Well, no, I, I fall down all the time. It's, I get up, you know, it's like, but it's a great metaphor for life, right? You fall down, you get up, you mm-hmm. fall down, you get up. But each time you get up, you want to be a little bit better than you were before, a little bit stronger, a little bit smarter than you were before. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that all those competitions that I totally bombed, you know, where I was a miserable failure, I own those. Those are my fault. Those were my responsibility. I had enough talent where I, I should have been better. I could have been better. I just didn't know how to do it. Mm. And so once I figured out that all I really need to do is the work and I need to show up every day and I need to you know, be consistent and I need to be hungry and I need to be accountable, my mom's with me every step of the way mm. there. you know. And so it was more than just sort of fighting through bad training habits. It was, it was more about building that hunger and that passion that you know, took me through those days where I really honestly did not feel like being there. Mm. You know, it worked out great. You know, I figures when I turned into a game, you know, it's really funny. The whole year that I was training for the Olympics, you know, figures are technique, but they're also rhythm. Mm. You, know, you want to be in the same place doing the same thing at the same time, and then you can carve the same pattern. You know, it's a, a lot of repetition, a lot of technique, but to get the rhythm going, every single time I'd push forward, I'd hear that Cool in the Gang song get down on it, right? <laughs> I wanted to get right down on that tracing and stay there, you know? Mm. And so sure enough, I get to the Olympics, and I'm in the most, like, I'm doing my inside rocker 
three lobe, a three circle figure, and you know it, you get change of direction, change of everything, circle, all those things that take that consistency and the repetition. And the first thing I did when I pushed off was get down on it, <laughs> get down on it. Yep, yep. <laughs> so every time I hear that song, I'm right back on you know doing my figures and. Yep. And it was a way for me to really just focus in on the rhythm and the repetition and making something the same every single time. And yeah. sometimes it takes those external types of things to allow you to make it the same every single time. A little mental anchor that gives you something, the trigger. Then you practice like you play and you play like you practice, right? Yeah. And you make yourself nervous every single time you start a program. Yeah. And then, you know, it builds that adrenaline, right? So when, by the time you get to competition that adrenaline can really betray you mm. unless you're used to it. And you right. go, oh, this little palpitation. Right. Yeah, I know what that is. Right. I've had it every day for the last three months. Right. <laughs> you know, so yep. you don't freak yourself out. That's awesome. And so you have gone on to now become this kind of American icon in a lot of ways, you know, as a spokesman, as a commentator. You know, Stars on Ice was this massive influence your battle with cancer and your battle with brain tumors has been inspiring to say the very least and and you you continue to be an inspiration to so many people with that and uh, with that said i'd love you to talk about you know this phase of your life you know it's people who have reached the highest highs typically get to a place where they realize that life's all about others and about giving and about serving and about loving and so many people have gone down that journey and the Scott Hamilton Cares Foundation. Talk to us a little bit about that and the work that you guys are doing today. Well, you know, 40 years ago, I lost my mom. Mm-hmm. 40 years ago this year. And uh, the day I lost her, I basically became a fundraiser. Mm. You know, I was going to get out and I was going to do ice shows and I was going to do whatever I could to raise money for cancer research. And I did that for 20 years. You know, I, every time I could, I'd just try to, like, oh, let's turn this into a fundraiser. Or let's mm-hmm. do a show in Bowling Green and make it a fundraiser. And so I, I really wanted to get resources into the right hands. And, you know, throughout, I just wanted to do more and more and more. And then all of a sudden, now I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm being infused with, you know, with chemotherapy. And it's like, whoa, I'm on the other end of this now. And what I learned was so profound. You know, what I learned, what was missing in the cancer community all the things that patients need when they go through things. And so as a thank you to the Cleveland Clinic, I started the CARES initiative at that point. And so for 16 years, you know, we did these fundraisers and we built these programs like chemocare.com, which is a website about everything you need to know about chemotherapy, how it's administered, how to deal with side effects in eighth grade English, because that didn't exist when Mm. I went to my chemotherapy. Another thing was I didn't know how I was doing. I wanted to quit after round three. I was freaked out by post-surgical swelling, all those different things that, you know, I didn't know and I, because I'd never been there before, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so I realized that there was something missing in support. And so we created a mentorship program called Fourth Angel where First Angel is your oncologist, your Second Angel is your oncology nurse, your Third Angel is your friends and family. There needs to be a Fourth Angel. And the Fourth Angel is somebody that's been there, done that, is on the other side and can work as sort of a life coach, a mentor, a mm. role model for you and now in your battle where you go, Am I how am I doing? Or did you have this? You know, mm. because nobody else speaks your language when you're going through cancer. You just feel so isolated and, you know, kind of alone and it's very frightening when those aspects exist. You know, so we filled in those two boxes and now I'm all about 
research. The more they understand about, you know, the genome, the more they understand about, you know, immunology, the more they understand about all these super critical points of how to attack a cancer cell. You know, the, the science used to be driven by the finances, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now the science is a light year ahead of the money. So mm. we've got to find a way to close that gap. And so the main focus of now CARES as a independent foundation is to raise money for that research that's being done in so many places in amazing ways where they teach your body's immune system how to fight the cancer. Mm. And right now, both of us, our bodies are killing and removing cells that aren't right. But somehow the cancer cells trick the body, and it's figuring out how to unmask them, figuring out how to recognize them, figuring out all those things where we can one day get away from chemotherapy and even traditional radiation, which I think is you know hitting parts of the body. It's the collateral damage approach mm, to right. cancer treatment that I really object to. I think mm-hmm. it's sort of barbaric, and its day has passed, and now it's about really funding the future of cancer treatment options where you can actually treat the cancer specifically and spare the patient harm. Mm. And that's, you know, the pure focus of the CARES Foundation now. And if people want to support us on the web, it's scottcares.org, and, you know, they can support our mission. You know, as a foundation, you know, we're two years old, so I joke that we're an 18-year-old startup, you know. (laughs) (laughs) When we kind of set sail, you know, and we became an independent entity from the Cleveland Clinic, I still do all the stuff I've ever done for the clinic. I still do that because I really love them and I, you know, I want to support them. I'm grateful for them saving my life. But on the other hand, I realized that as an independent foundation, I can touch more places, learn from other things, unite the cancer community. Mm. I'm not big on silos. I'm really big on collaboration. Nice. So if there's a way that I can, you know, through raising money for research, if I can figure out a way to create those collaborations and tear down the silos and, and really lift up the cancer community in a new way and, and really reward those scientists that are doing the right research that truly elevates treatment options that spare the patient harm, then I'm doing what I need to be doing. Well, I have no doubt, based on your history, as a man who's been there and done that and fought through all the challenges you fought through to come out the best in the world, I have no doubt that the scottcares.org organization will be the best in the world at what it does. So it's a joy to have you, and it's a joy to share your message. I have a little uh, tradition for any guest on the Brian Buffini Show, and uh, (laughs) you you don't know what's coming. No one ever does. But I have five questions I like to ask, and just off the top of your mind, when you hang up afterwards, you'll be thinking, I should have said this, but it'll be great. (laughs) So let's go into the great Abuso together here. First question, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Oh, my goodness. It was that, you know, this too shall pass. Mm. You know, enjoy every moment now, but understand that tomorrow will be different than today and and be ready to embrace it. Beautiful. Who gave you that? The governor of the state of Colorado, Richard Lamb. A great man. That was a man that spoke into your life. The right message at the right time, right? Yes, sir. All right. What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Man, I wish I were a rock star. Yeah. I mean, I'd really love that. I, you know, I always thought, well, I learned to play the guitar, but it yeah. hurt my fingers. And I thought, I'd love to play the drums, but I hated the repetition, you know. So, and I can't sing a note, so mm. I guess I'm going to have to, you know, just live vicariously through others. So yep. I always yep. wanted to be a musician. I always thought that would be the coolest thing. I'd ever. say eight out of ten people 
who I've asked, the most successful people on the planet all say, I wish I could play an instrument or I wish I could perform on stage. It's an interesting thing. So, kids, if you're listening, keep taking those piano lessons. (laughs) All right. Uh, What book has been the most instrumental in your life? Oh, the Bible. But, you know, it's funny because each time I read it, I read it with a different sensitivity and a different understanding. Sure. You know, when I first started picking it up, it was like, holy cow, this is long. This is big. This is like, you know, I don't know if I can ever do this. And then, you know, when I met my uh, minister, Ken Durham, years ago, he just said, look, pick this thing up and understand this is a book of history. These things actually happen. They're not fairy tales. They're actual historic events. And I go, I love history. So I started to read it. And then even now, to this day, you know, I pick it up and I... I hear something else. I, mm-hmm. I understand something else. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. What one character in the Bible do you most identify with? David. Oh, wow. You know, he was I mean, small was, and mighty. Uh, you know, he had to go up against a lot of stuff. And yeah. he had to deal with a lot of stuff his whole life. And, you know, that first victory changed the trajectory of his life. And even throughout, he struggled. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think he understood his love for the Lord and, you know, the fact that, you know, where his shortcomings are and, you know, where he kind of made his mistakes. But it was his passion for the Lord and his passion for, you know, just living his life genuinely. He made a lot of mistakes, mm-hmm. a ton of mistakes. Yeah. And he did a few things that were really horrible. So in that regard, he's not really a role model. But, mm-hmm. you know, when I see that first thing where he said, you guys don't want to do this, I'll do it. Mm. I'll do it. And I'm going to go up against the giant, and yeah. I'm going to slam. He doesn't have a chance. Well, I love the fact that even though he messed up a lot, God still loved him, and that's that's yep. hope for us all. We're all that. Right? Yep. We're all that. A <laughs> couple more here. Favorite song. It's the song that comes on, and it, it just does it for you, or there's a band, or the kids go, they're listening in the car, oh, that's Dad. What song or tune? Uh, maybe it's Get Down On It. I don't know. But what's your... <laughs> What's your song or tune that just is, uh, that's Scott's tune? You know, it's so funny. You know, I grew up in northwestern Ohio, and I was, you know, a big rock guy, you know, mm-hmm. right down the street from Detroit, you mm-hmm. know, and you're just down the street from Cleveland, and, you know, it's all rock and roll. So I can sing, you know, pretty much, or I know every word to all these different songs. Mm-hmm. My, my band, you know, for years and years and years was Led Zeppelin. I just thought they <laughs> oh, were wow. great. The first record I ever bought was a Jethro Tull record. Oh, I love Jethro Tull. Yeah, so any Jethro Tull, and yeah. I wanted to always skate to the Passion Play, but I, I could never find a way to edit it, you know, around the words. But if I listen to that, like Thick as a Brick yeah. or Passion I know all the words, and my kids just look at me like I have, like, 12 heads. And, yeah. Dad's rocking out to the flute. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you know, Zeppelin, Springsteen, it's all those guys. So, awesome. You know, it's not you know, a song. It'd be really hard. You know, nice. I'm a huge Boston fan. I'm oh, a big yeah. um, Cheap Trick fan. I'm, you know, all those you know great songs. And you know, when we're on a long drive to the rink from my house, you know, I challenge my nine year old. I go, just put it on classic rock, and I'll tell you the name of the song and the band. <laughs> you know, with the first, yep. you know. 10 seconds. <laughs> Name that tune. <laughs> it's, it's jaw-dropping. You look at it and they go, how did you know that? You know? It's really fun. Uh, yep, that's great. Same story played out in the Buffini household. Okay, here's <laughs> last but not least. You're scrolling through the channels, and there's a movie that you have seen a bunch of times, and you can never pass it over. What's the one movie you watch, or you watch parts of it over and over again? There's a bunch of those, right? You know, there's Rudy. I'm looking mm. at uh, Hoosiers. Mm-hmm. 
even the Matrix, because they're so visual and so interesting and just, you know, the whole kind of odd spiritual quality of it, you know. And then, you know, there's the Back to the Futures. I can't, and any Bill Murray movie, I can't, I can't get past it. I have to stop <laughs> and I have to listen. It's That's crazy. great. But I do hear with Hoosiers and even Michael J. Fox and with Rudy, that's the classic underdog. That's the small guy who was the classic underdog who came out and did great big things when no one believed him and uh, everyone was against him. And that ultimately is the movie of Scott Hamilton from my perspective. Yeah. And you are an inspirational guy who's lived this incredible life, tough, difficult, challenging, setback, heart-wrenching, brought you to the end of yourself on so many times. But... As you said, pain is a terrific teacher. Your greatest strength is is that lack of weakness. Excellence is built on the mountain of failure. And ultimately, you learn to believe in yourself. And you are a, a champion. Uh, you are the best in the world of what you do, but you're a champion of a man, a champion of a person. Now you're championing people who are sick, who need the Scott Hamilton Cares Foundation to continue to rock to make it the most humane process possible. It's an honor to call you a friend. It's an honor to know you. I want to thank you for being with us here today, and I know you've blessed a lot of people. And we will be doing some more stuff together, my friend. I promise you. I'm going to, oh, I hope so. I'm going just, to get you I out really to my love, audience. I love, 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 you know, just the foundation of your principles and everything that you've given to so many people and in a way that you allow them to be joyfully ethical and mm. you allow them to be successful and you inspire them to be better than they were, you know, yesterday. And I just, I so admire that. And so... It's been really fun to step into your world, and um, I, I really love everything that you do. It's great stuff. Well, it's been a, a treat to have you. For those of you who are listening, I hope you enjoy today's show. I hope you leave us a, a review. That's how we learn what you like and what you love. I hope you'll share this message with a friend. We don't do sponsorship. We don't do promotions on this show. All we do is our, our mission is to positively impact as many people as we can. And I would imagine you know a number of people who could love and benefit from the message you heard today from Scott Hamilton. So please share this show with them. And I'm going to leave you today with a little Irish blessing that I always do, that my grandfather always said. And this is directed to you, Mr. Hamilton, and to all those who are listening. May the roads rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sunshine warm upon your face. Until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. We'll see you next time. 